The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. You know, Lisa, Zara is said to be part of the fast fashion part of the retail market that's kind of really figured out how to give consumers exactly what they want with a deep dive at what Zara is doing and why they don't like that fast fashion description uh, to what they're doing. Stephanie Baker is senior writer at Bloomberg Markets, and uh, she joins us from our London bureau. Uh, Stephanie, um, the story in Bloomberg Businessweek, which is online and on newsstands. I love uh, this story. Can I just say, I Uh, really love it. I do, too, because I think we all know about Zara, and we often hear about when we look at the retail sector. Stephanie, that this is one of the retailers, fashion retailers, that seems to have figured out how to do it. Talk to us about um, internally how it works. Yes, I was really fascinated by Zara, how they managed to get it right time and time again um, in terms of coming up with designs that people want. Um, And I was curious when I started this, who is their chief designer? And I asked around, and apparently they don't have one, which makes them quite unique in the retail space. You know, the likes of Gap, um, Primark, H&M, they all have chief designers. Zara doesn't have one partly because they are pushing out new designs so quickly that there's no way they could channel them up through a hierarchy like that and turn around new fashions as quickly as they do. It's fashion democracy, isn't it? It is. And uh, I saw it in action when I was there, and I found it really impressive because it's kind of designed by consensus. If if everyone likes it and, you know, perhaps the top menswear buyer or womenswear buyer doesn't, well, he's outvoted. He or she is outvoted. And I thought that was a, a really clever way of doing it. They have a very flat uh, management structure, and they're very much focused on process, on looking at data from the stores, talking to store managers, trying to figure out what is the feedback, what are people uh, wanting. And they don't just churn out, you know, big sellers and just make more of them because they know we all don't want that. We don't want to rock up to a party with the same dress that someone else is wearing. They then tweak the design, make it different, but, you know, kind of channel the same types of themes that are working well. Well, um, one thing that I thought was so compelling in your story was that uh, Zara's parent company has virtually no ad budget apart from social media marketing. Can you talk about how they make their social media presence so effective? That's uh, another surprise I had. I assumed that they did. And then I looked at it and I realized, no, they don't advertise in the fashion magazines or in newspapers or they don't do billboards, any of that. Um, they They... decided it's not worth the money, that um, what they're doing is, you know, pulling 
ideas from consumers and as opposed to what traditional fashion retailers do is they dream up a design, they dream a, a, up a fashion campaign three months in advance and then market it heavily through um, lots of advertising dollars to consumers. Um, you know, they are clever about how they use social media, but they don't spend on advertising. And it's interesting, too, that, you know, they don't have to, right? I feel like, what an interesting era we're living in. Donald Trump, right, has been very smart using social media. He hasn't, he didn't really have to spend a lot on traditional ad dollars uh, with networks and so on and so forth. And similarly, Zara, like some of the customers, you know, create Twitter accounts on, on various items. You got you write in your story about, is it a blue coat that got its own Twitter account? And everybody started just posting pictures of the coat. Well, but yes. why, doesn't, why doesn't everyone copy them? Well, this is the other question I had, which was, um, it, they're not so easily copied. Uh, this is a, a culture and a vertical supply chain that has been built up over four decades, um, 60% of their production is at factories that are close to their headquarters, so Spain, Portugal, Morocco. Um, and, you know, I, it's that's not an easy model to copy if you're an H&M or a Gap. I think it's that that's probably why they have broken ahead uh, of the pack. Stephanie Baker, senior writer for Bloomberg Markets, talking to us from the London Bureau of Bloomberg LP. A fascinating look at Zara and its incredible democratic strategy for getting fashions out quickly and distributing them through social media. I'm Lisa Bromowitz here with Carol Masser. This is Bloomberg. Chris Whalen, I'm so glad that you could be with us today. Chris Whalen, Senior Managing Director at the Kroll Bond Rating Agency. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I cooked. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about your view on financials, which is a little bit of a contrarian take to the uh, pretty tremendous rally that we've seen over the past few weeks. Well, financials are a much neglected sector. You know, you can recall back in the mid-2000s when it was the biggest sector in the S&P 500. I think it's number three now. And a lot of managers have been dying to own these names for years. So as soon as there's a hint of change in terms of, as you guys were just discussing, net interest margin, things of that nature, maybe different regulatory environment, everybody cheered and they rushed in. But, you know, it takes a long time to fix uh, seven, eight years of very, very low interest rates because your typical bank rolls anywhere from 15 to 20 percent of its balance sheet each year. So it's going to take a long time to get the benefit of higher rates. And I, I think we are going to see higher rates over the next few years. How much higher? Like, what's the trajectory, uh, Chris, that you maybe are, you know, kind of factoring into your models? Well, it's interesting. I'm doing a mortgage piece for Monday um, in this nice, quiet uh, Black Friday. And, um, you know, the mortgage bankers are looking at a 5% handle for a 30-year mortgage uh, two years out. Wow, that's that's up from, what, three and three yeah. quarters, like just a couple of that's weeks That's right. And just between the end of October and kind of now in the mortgage market, we went from a 3% coupon for Fannie and Freddie's. That's kind of a reference point for where the mortgage market is to a three and a half. So that's a big move. You know, most mortgage bankers try and hedge, you know, three quarters of a point, maybe a point in market move for a year. 
and we saw that in three weeks. Hmm. So rate risk is now back on the table. And as I've been saying, you know, for the past couple of days, we put a piece out about the banks last week that's up on uh, our website. But, you know, there could be some surprises in the fourth quarter that are different from the surprises we had back in the first quarter. You remember that when the market was very quiet, but everybody was assuming down rates. And in fact, even with the Fed maybe raising some of their benchmarks, uh, we were still assuming market rates would stay down with a flat yield curve. Now we have a steepening curve. Well, so, you know, things have changed rather dramatically. Well, and one point in your note was that, you know, banks may be more exposed to duration or longer term uh, treasuries and mortgages that, that sell off in this period of rising rates and could actually end up being a liability for the banks in the short term. I mean, uh, isn't this sort of what the banks have gotten out of the business of doing is owning big piles of riskier securities. And I understand that treasuries and, and, and um, agency-backed mortgages aren't considered risky, but certainly the duration is. Well, this is the thing. Yeah, you're right. Under the Volcker rule, which is kind of a halfway step back to Glass-Steagall, if you think about it, they're not supposed to trade for their own account. So all of their portfolio is supposed to be hedged in terms of price. But they still have a big investment bucks. They also have a mortgage lending where you have to manage the incoming cash each month versus the number of mortgages you have to fund. And that rate lock desk is a very important position, both for banks and non-banks. So, you know, if you were sitting there mid-October and you thought you had a pretty good handle on your overall risk, and then the yield curve moves half a point, you know, you, you have a lot of people who may have gotten hit really hard in terms of just managing their risk. And remember, when you look at the, the projections from the mortgage bankers for next year, they're assuming that prepayments of mortgages are going to plummet. They're talking about refinancing volumes, which are about half of the market this year. We're going to do $2 trillion in mortgages this year. Half of that was refinancings. They're talking about cutting that in half next year. You know, you, you talk about kind of these tremendous moves that we've seen in the fixed income market, Chris. Um, and I think in your note, you include something about, like, watch the fourth quarter, that how many financial firms, banks in particular, the Wall Street banks, you know, got caught off guard by the volatility and the moves up uh, that we saw in treasuries following the election. And that could have a financial impact on them. A lot of these people are younger than I am, and they may not remember the 1990s when we had things like Kidder Peabody and long-term capital management and that whole notion of a mortgage bond because of changes in, in refinancings and prepayments going from a two-year average life to an eight-year average life. <laughs> and when that happens, the volatility of that bond increases dramatically and also the pricing because you're suddenly pricing it off the 10-year or the 30-year instead of off the two-year treasury note. And that duration risk, what we call option-adjusted duration, is a big deal which people haven't had to think about in a decade. Well, but so Chris, do you think that, that um, financial stocks are poised for some sort of correction? Uh, I think that we could have some short-term surprises before we see the medium-term benefits of higher rates. Right. We'll how, severe, see that. How, how serious would the surprises be? We don't know because, you know, ultimately it comes down to how well the bank or the non-bank is managing their rate risk mm -hmm. and how well, and, and let, let me put it to you this way, if in the middle of October you were assuming a flat curve and stable market rates, regardless of what the FOMC did, right, and suddenly you get the reverse, if you were a little light on your hedge, 
if you were kind of trying to get your margins up a bit by not being fully hedged on your investment book, you could have gotten hurt. Or to put it another way, you know, a lot of uh, mortgage uh, shops got annihilated in the first quarter and the second quarter because the value of their mortgage business kept getting marked down by the accountants. But they were making money on the hedge. Now you have the opposite. Things like mortgage servicing rights are going to go up in value this quarter because the duration of these portfolios is going to extend. People are going to be slower to prepay their mortgages. So those cash flows are worth more, but you could lose it on the hedge. So it's a dramatic reversal of what we were dealing with in the first half of the year. So, Chris, got about 35 seconds here, 40 seconds left here. Your advice to investors at this point, sit tight or what? Look, I, we, we love the smaller banks. You know, we're a credit shop. We don't mm-hmm. do uh, equities, but we have been working with a lot of smaller institutions, and they generally have really attractive yields, both on their debt and their equity. So I would be patient, but I would just you know, caution people who've been focused on the equity markets, don't uh, underestimate the potential for surprises as we go into fourth quarter earnings. Chris Whalen, thank you so much for being with us as you marinate in the smells of your wonderful home cooking for this Thanksgiving. Probably Chris good Whalen. leftovers. Yeah, good leftovers. Chris Whalen, Senior Managing Director at the Kroll Bond Rating Agency. I don't know, throwing a little bit of cold water on the uh, latest rally in financials. Smart, thoughtful, right? Because we're I just watching so. the big moves, and I, I just thought it was really thoughtful. I would agree. I think it's an important thing to remember, yeah. duration. This is Bloomberg. our sights uh, overseas because it's turning out to be an interesting super election cycle uh, if you look at what's going on around the globe. Next up, France. On Sunday, France's Republican Party will choose its candidate for the presidential election next spring. Let's find out what we need to know. Joining us right now, government reporter Greg Viscusi of Bloomberg News joining us on the phone from Paris. Uh, Greg, nice to have you here with us. What do we need to know right now about what's happening uh, in France? Well, there's the second round of the primary on Sunday. The French always do elections in two rounds. The first round, anyone runs, anyone who can get on the ballot runs. There were seven of them running last Sunday. The top two people now face off on on, on this Sunday. And one, one was expected, Alain Juppé, uh, the mayor, former prime minister, mayor of Bordeaux. Um, he'd been the front runner most of the time. But everyone thought that he would run off against Nicolas Sarkozy, who the former president. Instead, he got eliminated in the first round. And it's a, for another former prime minister, Francois Fillon, who be running, who be running against Juppé. Um, so um, it's Sunday, and it's it's this Sunday, and it's 2016. So I won't make any predictions because every <laughs> other prediction this year has not been very good. Well, well, how much has the the election of President Trump in the U.S. on November 8th? How much of that is trickling into the discourse in France right now? Well, interestingly, and it's, it, it has, and it's hard to say what the effect has been. Um, Marie Le Pen, um, 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 Marine Le Pen, who's the leader of the far-right National Front, um, you know, she's the one that's most most compared to Trump. I mean, they're not exactly the same, but, um, you know, populist, anti-immigration, anti-free trade. Anti-European um, Union, right? Anti-European Union, exactly. Um, she, she thought this is great news. I mean, she, she, she's been going on and on. It just shows that, the, you know, the people are taking back control, and, you know, it happened in America. America. It can happen here. It happened in Britain. Um, 
On the other hand, Trump was never very popular in France. It was a real shock for most of for most of the population. I mean, the polls show that when they poll people on it, like you know, 70, 80 percent people say that they they wish he hadn't won. So, you could almost say that it's caused sort of a, a reaction amongst some centrist or center-right voters who maybe might have been tempted to, to vote for Le Pen. So, I mean, again, it's really hard to say. The election's not till April, next April. The, the, the real election's not till next April. So it's very hard to say how it'll turn out. We also don't know how Donald Trump's going to turn out between now and April. Um, so there's not... It, 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 it's gone both ways. She certainly... Marine Le Pen certainly sees it as a plus. Um, I think the other parties would sort of see it as a warning and that it works in their favor. So we'll have to see how that turns out. Greg, I love what you said, what you initially said about, you know, I don't want to have to predict because we certainly feel your pain about predicting anything (laughs) at this point. Um, How engaged uh, is the French voter? Well, in the, well, for general elections, quite a lot. I mean, generally about 80 percent vote. So, um, you know, it's, it's a much higher rate than the U.S. This is a primary, and it's the first time that the center-right party, the Republicans, have held a primary. And the big question is turnout. Many more people voted last Sunday than were expected. They were People thought that maybe two to three million people would show up and vote. In the end, it was a little over four million. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not much. You only have to pay two euros, which is equivalent to about two dollars, and sign a paper saying that you share the values of, of the party. And that was it in order to vote in it. So it was open to anyone, which meant that there actually was some tactical voting. There were some leftists who, there were some people who normally vote for the socialists or vote for leftist parties who voted last Saturday. And they just, they, they, they wanted to make sure that, that Sarkozy did not, um, did, did, was, not the non, was not the candidate because they were, they were afraid of next April or next May having to make a choice between Sarkozy and Le Pen, which is the choice that, that anyone on the center or the left did not want to have to make to have two sort of fairly right-wingers running against each other. So we don't know if those people are going to go back this Sunday since, since Sarkozy has now been eliminated. We really just don't know. I mean, there were people who voted for Fillon last time because they thought that that would be maybe the best way to eliminate Sarkozy. They may now vote for Juppé. I mean, you know, the Juppé people, since he did rather badly in the first round, maybe discouraged and not come back to Sunday. We really don't know. It all comes down to turnout. And that, that, that's one other reason why making predictions for this to this Sunday is kind of foolhardy. Well, um, can you talk a little bit about the breakdown in the French uh, population with respect to uh, the right-leaning Republicans and the other party? I mean, is it pretty much 50-50? No, no, not at all, because you've got the whole, you've got the whole left wing, too. The problem is that, is, that, is that President Hollande has been in office for five years now, and whether fairly or not, his, his term in office has generally been considered a failure, and he's at very, very low approval ratings, is, depending on how the Depending on the pollster, his approval ratings are they're, they're, they're down in the teens, and in some cases, low teens. So, as I said, in France, it's a two-round – elections are two rounds. You always have a first round where a bunch of candidates run, and then the top two run off um, – they run off in the second round. Um, I mean, generally, France is split sort of – kind of 50-50 between left and right. But the problem is, is that a far right, the National Front, has suddenly emerged and taken a lot of votes out of the more traditional center right, let's say. Um, meanwhile, support for the left has tumbled um, because of Hollande. And it's also led to some 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 renegade leftists saying they're going to run against them um, on the far left. So, I mean, it's it's very, very fragmented right now. I mean, on the whole, I would say that the spectrum is much wider than the right. U.S. It goes from much further to the left to much further to the right. But there's many more parties. It's not just two parties, you know, and also parties come and go in this country. So it's very hard to, you know, it, it's not like the U.S. that's had the two, two same parties that 
that have been in there for over 100 years and, you know, have sort of switched sides over those 100 years. Um, in France, parties, they're born, they die, they, they're reborn, new parties emerge. Greg, just real quickly, five seconds, is there a number one issue? Is it immigration? Is it the economy? It's the economy. It's the economy. It's definitely the economy and unemployment. That's number one. All right. We got to run. We'll be watching, though, uh, as really, as I mentioned, a super election cycle around the world and uh, certainly unpredictable on many levels. Greg Viscusi, government reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us on the phone from Paris on this Friday. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets. Carol Master, along with Lisa Bromwitz, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.